and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of God. Um, I'd love to spend some time praying and asking that God would be speaking to us now. My hope is, and hopefully your hope as well, is that during this time that God will actually show all of us more of who he is and what he's done for us. So let's, let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now that you would be helping us understand what you are like and just... That we would recognize that, that that can only happen with your help. You're not of this world. You are, you are different to us. And we, just, we want you to be revealing to us your, your, your character, who you are, what you've done, and your love for us. And Lord, we pray as we look at this story that has transformed so many lives before, that you would be using it to transform our lives and to help us know more truly who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, like Jez said before, for the last uh, five weeks, we've been working our way through a series called Introducing Jesus, and um, some of you guys have been here every single week for that. If you are here for the first time, though, today, that's, that's, that's great as well. We love having you here with us. And over this series, we've been looking at some of the, um, the big questions about, about who Jesus is. We've looked at some of the claims he has made, in particular, his claim to be able to provide life to the full and what that looks like. We've looked at his claim to be God, and some of the evidence for that um, quite radical claim. We've looked at the question as to why uh, Christianity is built on the symbol of the cross and why it is that Jesus had to die and why that is foundational for understanding the Christian message. We've looked at what Jesus calls us to and wants us to, to, to do in following him. And today we're, we're landing on one last question, which is the question of what does it mean to have faith? Which is just another way of asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you know if you are a, a part of this group called Christians? Um, and for those, and we have people among us who are, who are trying to work out 
uh, what it would mean to become a Christian, the, the question is, what do you actually have to know or, or, or do or, or believe in order to become a Christian? Now, for some groups, it, it's, it's quite obvious, I think, how, how you become a part of them. So if you want to be, uh, become an Australian, there's a, there's a process, assuming you weren't born here, there's a process of applying and meeting criteria, passing a test. And the, the sign that you're in is when the Australian government kind of ticks you off and says, yes, you are an Australian citizen. That's how you join that group. Uh, but other groups are different. To, to call yourself a vegan, you don't need to apply or get approval, unless I've missed something, guys. No? I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it's really about your choices. And like many things, you can take it upon yourself to join that group by just altering your behavior. If you decide you're not going to eat animal products, you have the right to call yourself a vegan. Other groups aren't quite as clear as this. Um, if you've ever tried to break into a close-knit group of friends before, or you've tried to get into kind of an inner circle that you see at, at a workplace or at school or at uni or even at church, and you may have had that experience of being just left with the frustration of not knowing kind of what it is that, that means that these group of people get to be kind of in this circle and, and I'm somehow on the outside. You don't actually know quite what it would take to get on the inner and so the question is, when it comes to being a Christian, what is it? What is the thing that you need to do or know or believe to be a Christian? I think many people who, who would call themselves Christians see it in terms of something that you're born into. You know, you get kind of christened or, or baptized as a kid, and that means that, yeah, you are of this faith. Um, I think others maybe see it in terms of taking on a way of life or, or, or living a certain way, acting a certain way. That's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, others might think of it more cynically in terms of... Uh, all you've got to do to be a Christian is to kind of check your brain at the door, not think too hard, and just kind of believe whatever you're told. Um, and for others, it might just be thinking, you know, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a kind of subculture. It's a way of talking, a way of dressing. You leave your fashion at the drawer, you, d- you dress like a dag, you use words like dag that no one ever uses, and that's what it means to be a Christian. But the Bible is clear that the thing that, that makes someone a Christian is this issue of faith or belief. One of the most kind of famous verses in the Bible is where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, and the question remains, as simple as that verse sounds, well, what is this belief that you need to have? What is this belief that you need to have to, to have eternal life? And this is what I want to look at today. What, what is it that you need to know to be a Christian? What does it actually mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe? And I want to argue today that the heart of Christianity is built not in faith in something, but faith in someone. That the sort of faith that makes you a Christian is more of a relational realization than it is an intellectual one. That's not to say there's not a place for kind of careful thinking and and logic and and looking into evidence and, and all that kind of thing, which we've spoken a lot about in the last few weeks. But at its core, the faith that we're talking about is the understanding of a relationship. And it, and it, At its core, it's trusting that God is your father, that he loves you, that he's welcomed you into his family despite the fact that you don't deserve it. And I want to unpack that by looking at this story that Jez just read for us, which is a story that Jesus told a crowd of people 2,000 years ago. And and it's it's a story that, it's a symbolic picture to help us understand what, what is actually going on when someone becomes a Christian. And it's a story of a son and his father, um, and we're going to be kind of working our way through this, seeing what, what this story has to offer us, and it's going to come up on the screen behind me. So we're going to look at this story of the younger son. And he said, that's Jesus, 
There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. This story, it starts off with what at face value is a very simple request. There's a, there's a son, he's asking for an advance payment on what he would eventually get one day or another um, in terms of an inheritance. But beneath this simple request is a very obvious um, offense that's being caused. It's a disrespect. Well, to ask for your inheritance while your father is still alive is basically to wish him dead. What the son is saying in this request is that he wants his father's things, but he doesn't want his father himself. He doesn't want the relationship with him. He just wants the stuff that he's got to offer. The son doesn't say, I hate you, but but the fact that he's asking for this is just displaying his lack of love, the lack of affection he's got for his father. The only thing he sees his father being good for is what his wealth can purchase. And so given the disrespect in this request, it's, it's amazing what happens next. We see that he divided his property between them. The, the father in this story does what you'd not expect. The only thing you'd expect in response to what he's being asked is for him to kind of smack his son across the head. But instead, in what must have been an agonizing experience, the father gives his son a share of everything that he has. The story goes on in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So not only is, is the father losing half of his stuff, he's now losing one of his two, two children. And when the son goes, this is what happens. It says, And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. To this point, we've seen this story of riches to rags. It's the story of someone putting themselves in a desperate and destitute situation purely because of their own selfishness, their own foolishness, and ending up with absolutely nothing. And what we're seeing in this story at this point is this symbolic picture of what is both the essence and the effects of what the Bible calls sin. Jesus is trying to help us get our head around the idea which has permeated the Bible, this idea of what sin really is. And what we're meant to see in this story is a picture of how each one of us is related to God. The son basically says to the father, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And this is what we've done to God. A few weeks ago, and as Jesus was talking about sin, he helpfully said that sin isn't so much breaking God's rules as breaking God's heart. The son doesn't insult the father. He doesn't curse him to his face. He doesn't go behind his back. He doesn't disobey his orders. He doesn't steal from him. But what he does shows a complete indifference towards him. It just displays that he doesn't want him in his life. And this is what the Bible describes as sin. It's, it's to live as though God wasn't there. Whether that's through kind of outright you know, avoiding him or disbelieving him or doubting him. Or, or, or even if it's just to believe that he's there but want to have nothing to do with him. And yet instead to proceed in this life to look for, for, for our happiness, our meaning and our comfort in all the things that God provides. Whether that be your health or, or food or warmth or relationships or music or sex or, or whatever it is, every other good thing we look to are things we could only have because of the God who made this universe. At its heart, sin is using God. And we recognize, right, in, in, in our relationships that this is bad. 
to value what someone can give you rather than valuing the person themselves is, is, is a horrible way to relate to people. When we see someone enter a relationship for a reason other than love, but to gain something, whether that's to gain sex or to gain money or prestige or to make someone else jealous or to be able to feel powerful and manipulate someone for any reason other than actually loving the person, we see that's not right, that's off. And yet, and yet we do relate to people this way. Maybe you can see evidence of this in your own life. I, I was thinking of a time this week um, when I remember when I was in year three or year four, I got invited to a party of another kid in my class who I didn't think was very cool. He didn't have many friends. And he only invited three of us to his party. And my first response was to think, I don't want to go to this. I could, I, it's not going to look good for me to be hanging out with this guy. Um, but then I found out the party was at Wonderland. And so I was like, all right, I'm in. I decided to go. And like, yeah, you're allowed to kind of hate me for that because that's, that's bad, right? To, to, to not want to celebrate someone's birthday with them and, and to not care about them at all, but to use them for this experience for a free ticket to Wonderland is rough. But that is at the heart of our attitude towards God. We don't want anything to do with Him. And yet all the things that we do want are things that we can only have because of Him. See, sin is saying to God that we don't want Him. But this story not only shows us what sin is, but it shows us the effects of it. See, deep down, we looked at this a few weeks back, all of us want the good life. We all want life to the full. We all want to be happy. We all want to be fulfilled. And we go out into the world looking for, the, looking for this experience. In the same way that the son does, he goes out looking to, to achieve for himself life to the full. But in doing so, the son in this story cuts himself off from the one source of all the good things that he had. And that was, that's what happens to us as well. When we go out into the world seeking the good life but ignoring God, we don't find it. The things that we run to for our ultimate happiness do not last. Money doesn't satisfy long term. The new job that we have our hope in as being great and the fix for all our problems ends up being boring or stressful. The relationship which seems so good at first ends up being a drain and hard on us. The, the affirmation and prestige that we build up by creating an image for ourselves leaves us feeling exhausted and tired and empty. And I think this is why, despite living in this place in Sydney and in this time in the 21st century, where it is just objectively true that we have more of so many good things that people have wanted throughout history, small things like money and, and entertainment um, and resources and free time and health care and, and life expectancy, but, but also in terms of things like choice and freedom and equality. Uh, we've got more of so, so many good things. The life that we've, in a sense, have made for ourselves as a culture is pretty incredible. And yet the evidence shows that we are up against more depression and more anxiety and more suicide than any other group that's gone before us. And that, that begs uh, uh, the question, why? Why would that be? And, and you, honestly, I, I've, and I really enjoy listening to podcasts where psychologists and anthropologists, they, they discuss this phenomenon of why, why are we so depressed? Why are we so empty despite everything we have? And people struggle to find an answer. And people point to things like, oh, well, maybe our smartphones are making us depressed or it's the traffic on the roads or the house prices. Or, but none of these things seem to quite add up to why are we just so empty and lacking despite all the good things that we do have? The issue, this story would tell us is that, well, it's obvious we've removed ourselves from the ultimate source of life. In the same way that when you cut a branch off a tree, 
although it like instantly might still look alive, from that moment on, that branch is just going to die and wither and dry out. And I think as individuals and as a society, we are feeling the effect of having cut ourselves off from our life source. And you might think, well, that's not what you feel like. You, know, you might not feel depressed at the moment or anxious or anything like that, but it might just be that it hasn't caught up with you yet. Because it's just clear, when you, when you zoom out on a long enough timeline, there is no life without God. Because in the end, we die. In the end, our bodies don't keep on living forever. And at that point, the, the, the only possibility of continuing to live, even hypothetically, is that there would be a God or a being that can help you do that. So even if you've got the perfect marriage, the perfect job, the perfect family, the, for decade after decade, the realization will eventually come that none of these things last that you don't last, and like every other person, you'll have to step into the dark unknown. And it's a, it's, a, it's a dark realization, but it's one we need to come to terms with. That's the realization that the son experiences after he's gone out in pursuit of happiness, in pursuit of the good life, in ruling his, his own life. He ends up being empty and hopeless. He realizes he's made a mistake that's cost him dearly. And this is the first realization you must come to in order to be a Christian. You must realize that the way you've treated God is sin. You've treated God as a means to an end. You've used him. You've not wanted relationship with him himself. And because of this, you're in a hopeless situation. You've cut yourself off from the source of life, and it is a matter of time until you waste away. And there is nothing you can do about it. You cannot survive on your own for eternity. You can't create within yourself true, deep, lasting happiness. And so recognizing this is the first step we need to make. This is the first part of knowledge that that our faith must consist of. We need to believe that we're spiritually bankrupt and cut off from God because of our rejection of Him. But that's not the whole story. The story goes on. It doesn't just illustrate what we are like in our character and in the character of the Son, but it shows us what God is like in the character of the Father. So we'll read on from verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son, after realizing his situation, he makes a plan. He he knows he's forfeited the right to be a son of his father, but he figures that even the servants that his dad employs have it better than he does. So he decides, I'm going to go and just offer to work my way back into the home, work work off my debt, and hopefully just have a better life than this. And he prepares his speech, getting ready to acknowledge his failure as a son and, and to offer to work. But verse 20 shows what happens next. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The response of the father is dramatic here. He does what no ancient Near Eastern patriarch would have done, which is to, to run down the road. Running was an activity reserved for children. This man was meant to be respectable, a landowner. But with unguarded emotion, he runs towards his son and kisses him before he even says a word. But then the son does speak in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father doesn't even let him finish. He doesn't accept his offer to work. He's overjoyed and he brings him into the family feast. And if there is one thing that you need to know about this father and then about God, is that this is a father who deeply loves his son. He's filled with compassion and love and desire for his son. Um, I got to see a, a picture of a father's love in my family this week. Uh, we went to New Zealand uh, for my dad's 60th, all my family together to go into a hike through the mountains, and it was, an, it was an incredible week. But it was one of the rockiest starts to a family holiday you could possibly imagine. Um, we got, this is a, last Sunday, we all arrived at the airport together, the six of us coming in from our different directions. And we're in the line moving forward, nearly at the check-in, when my dad said, all right, everyone, passport's out. And my youngest brother goes, I don't have my passport. Now, everyone laughed straight away because that's a classic airport gag to say you've forgotten your passport. Um, not very original, but, you know, everyone's had a go of it. But then we started to see in his face, and he's not a particularly good actor, but this absolute terror and despair come across him. Um, and and he'd, he really had forgotten his passport left on the central coast. Now, I'm, I'm not normally an optimist, but initially I was optimistic, saying, this must happen. There's got to be a solution to this. They can let you on the plane. They can't. It doesn't happen. You need your passport at the airport. So he had to, we all went to New Zealand, he went back to the Central Coast. Now, he was going to get the flight the next day, but as we, as we, I saw my dad as he came to this realisation, and throughout the next day, my dad just wasn't himself. There was this sense of just something was lacking as my, as my brother wasn't there. And dad was just so eager for my brother just to arrive and be with the family again, to the extent that even as the next day, as his new flight with the passport was coming into land, dad was sitting in the apartment we'd rented on his phone, with the GPS flight tracker, just watching the plane get closer and closer um, to the airport with this anticipation, um, which, which caused a problem because then what we saw on this flight tracker was that the plane came into the, to the runway, overshot it, went up, and then over the next hour and a half flew to Wellington and landed there. There was a, a, a plane on the runway. So another night we went without my brother as he... And, and, and it's the thing, right? It wasn't until the next day where he finally got there after 48 hours of transit to New Zealand that we could experience what it meant to be together as a family. And Dad could actually just start enjoying his, his, his birthday holiday. And, then, and there's something that that's, that's how like, a father's meant to be, isn't it? Um, in actually just loving his kids, feeling incomplete without them, just wanting them to be there. And the point of this story is that, that, that God is like a father, that the love that God has for us is the same as, as, a, as a good father loving his child. And I think to understand God, that, that if there was only one thing you understood about him, you need to understand that he loves you as your father. He cares about you. He wants you with him. He's not indifferent towards you. He doesn't, he doesn't dislike you. He loves you. He, he's not the kind of God that gives up on you. And Jesus, in telling this story, wants you to know that God loves you. Whether you feel loved or not, whether you feel like you deserve it or not, whether you feel like you, you've done a lot of wrong things or you've actually lived a pretty good life, whatever, whoever you are, Jesus wants you to know that the way that God views you is a father loving their child. You are loved. 
And I think even as someone who's been a Christian for a while, and I'm sure for many of you guys, we can, we can forget this. It's easy to think of God as a kind of far-off being or a force or um, some, some, some abstract reality. But again and again and again, the, the language the Bible uses is that He loves you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to be with you. And the love that He loves you with is, is radically different, though, to any other love you could ever experience. Because the love of the Father in the story that we've been reading is just so different to the love even that my dad has for my brother. Whereas my brother made a mistake and maybe a bit stupid for forgetting his passport, he didn't do any great offense to the family. He didn't want to be cut off from, from us for a few days. Um, but the son in this story, he doesn't deserve love. He deserves anger. He's actually done wrong. He actually deserves to be just cut off from the family forever. The love he experiences and the love that we experience from God is an undeserved love. It's what Christians call grace. It's this undeserved kindness. The son deserves punishment or at best the opportunity to work the rest of his life for his dad to make up for what he'd done. But instead, he gets given even more than he'd already been given. He gets given a ring, a robe, and a feast. That's, that's what the grace of God is like. And it's a costly grace. It's a costly love. A, a few weeks ago, Jez said that there is no such thing as forgiveness without a cost. When you forgive someone, you take that cost upon yourself. And that's what happens for the father to forgive the son in this story. He has to, he has to let go of the fact that he's lost a, a whole portion of his estate to his son's foolish behavior. He, he misses out on the opportunity to even take him back as, as, as labor to kind of recoup some of the losses. But instead of that, he spends even further. He, he sacrifices the best of his livestock to, to put on a feast. He sacrifices his best ring, his best clothes in order to restore this son to sonship. True forgiveness is costly. And if you've ever seen an example of true forgiveness, you'll know this. Some years ago, probably seven years ago now, at our, at our old church um, where, where I used to go, we, we had the privilege of meeting a guy called Frank Retief. And he came along. He was a pastor of a church in South Africa, and he came to speak to our church. Um, and he's an, an amazing man. And he was a, a pastor of a church in South Africa in, in, in the 90s uh, during a lot of uh, heightened tensions around the apartheid. And he told us how in 1993... He was gathered with his church one evening for an evening service. Together they were singing some songs. When two men entered into their building, they opened fire on the congregation, threw grenades into the congregation, and within a couple of minutes, left 11 people dead and 53 injured and then fled. And, and he describes the scene of looking around at these people that he loves and seeing people dead on the ground, people suffering and bleeding, families just in, in hysterics. And then he described how 20 or 30 minutes later, as all the ambulances arrive and, and the media rocks up, a cameraman gets up into the face of one of the people from the church and says, what do you want to say to the people who did this? To which one of the members of his church replied, we want them to know that we forgive them. And that wasn't just one person, and that wasn't just one spur-of-the-moment thing in the chaos. The attitude that this church took together, even with people that have lost family members, was to say to the world, no, we, we want to love the people who did this. We want to forgive them. And your response to that might be, that makes no sense. They don't deserve that. That's stupid. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. And I think that's a fair thing to say about that. Because it actually doesn't. It doesn't make sense. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve love. 
But what this church was, was doing was showing that they want to forgive and love in a costly way because that's how they know they've been loved by God. That God forgave, forgave them and loved them at the expense of his son's death. Romans 5, 8, which come on the screen, says this. It says, But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the cost of love. Jesus paid with his life so that we might not be servants or slaves, but sons and daughters. That we might be welcomed back into a relationship with God. Understanding this, this love that God has for us and, and what it cost him to forgive and welcome us into his family is probably the hardest thing to get your head around with, with Christianity. It's the hardest thing to grasp. This is what we need to try and try and try to understand that, that God loves us so much that no matter what we've done, no matter how badly we've rebelled against him, that we don't have to make up for it. That he forgives us unconditionally because of what his son did. But that's grace. And so that when we talk about faith, what we're talking about is, is resting in this reality of knowing that God has done it for you. That the God who made this universe loves you like a father and is resting in that knowledge. So I ask the question, what does it mean to have faith? Faith means trusting that God loves you so much that despite your sin, he welcomed you back into his family by taking the cost on himself. Which leaves the question, do you trust that? Do you believe that? Firstly, do you believe that you've been living for yourself, that you have been distant from God? You've been avoiding him, neglecting him, treating him with indifference. But if that is true, then you do need to find a solution. You can continue just avoiding God and just hope that things work out for themselves. You can try to fix it yourself, which I know some of you guys have tried, just to kind of wind your life in and get control back of it again. Or you can throw yourself at God with the confidence that he will wrap his arms around you like a loving father. And the question I want to leave you with from today and from the rest of this series is what, what is stopping you from doing that today? If you're someone who has not embraced this, who doesn't know this, who hasn't experienced this love, what is stopping you from, from right now today saying, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me and resting in that reality. There could, there could be some very good reasons not to do that today and, and the most simple one being that you're just not convinced that it's true. Um, you might be even just hearing about this whole thing for the very first time and it's quite new to you and you're just skeptical about the whole thing. You haven't yet considered heavily or seriously, even if there is a God, maybe you don't even know if there's a God or not. You don't know if the Bible's reliable. Um, you don't necessarily agree you've been ignoring God or you don't agree that you need forgiveness. So if that's you, don't hear me just saying, well, just believe this because that would be uh, meaningless or, 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 or stupid even because you don't believe it. You can't make yourself just to believe this. If that is you and that fits with the description of you, the skeptical and yet to be convinced, I would say work towards a decision. Um, whether that be a decision to decide that Christianity is false and, or fraudulent or stupid or a waste of time, which it is if God's not real and if Jesus is, is, is incorrect in his claims about himself, um, or to decide that it is in fact true. Now, we want to help you do this because that can be a hard road to navigate, um, to decide whether this stuff has got anything really to it. We've got books at the back if you're a reader um, that I think provide a very a number of compelling arguments that Christianity is more reasonably believed as true than as false. Um, 
And so I encourage you toward that. But the other way would be, we want to be talking with you about this. And so if you're someone who's like, yeah, I need someone to help me really weigh up the evidence and to, to work toward the decision of one or the other, then we'd love you to get in touch with us to help you do that. Um, an easy way to come and speak to me. Another easy way would be write on the white cards in your seat. But, but there are others of you here who it's not your first time hearing this, and you've actually been looking into this stuff for quite some time. And you actually do believe there's a God. You've been convinced through whatever means that God is real and that Jesus is, a compelling, um, is compelling in his claim to be God and that what he's done has good evidence around it. And, and you do believe that you've been ignoring God. You, you believe that you've been using him for his stuff just out of relationship with him. You certainly wouldn't describe yourself as being close with him at the moment. And you've been trying to work your life out yourself. You've been seeking happiness and been left wanting to some extent. And yet, despite all this, you haven't thrown yourself in. You haven't turned to God. You haven't started this relationship. You haven't spoken to him or approached him or, or thanked him for what he has done for you. And if that's you, then I want to say today's the day to do it. Today's the day to do it. Even if up until this point you have been held back by something, you may have been held back by the, 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 the fear of change, of making a big decision like this, that, that, it, that things will change from this point on if you enter this relationship. Um, and I can relate. I struggled to commit to choosing a movie on Netflix because I don't want to make the wrong choice. Um, and so committing to a worldview shift is a big deal. And, and, and it has a lot of unknown attached to it. And to you, I just want to say that that Jesus promises you that what is waiting for you on the other side of this relationship is better than anything you could ever imagine. That, that he loves you like a good father. That he welcomes back with a feast. He's not going to just bring you in to give you something worse. Uh, the, the guarantee is with Jesus that he will not let you down. He will not leave you. He will give you more joy than you could ever imagine. And so it's trusting that and jumping in and experiencing it. You might be held back by a sense that you're not good enough yet, that you've just got to sort out a few more things and then you're ready to get on board. You've got to clean your life up, deal with an addiction or fix up a relationship or, or whatever it is. But this, this story is clear that, that Jesus died for you so that you could be welcomed as you are. Jesus hung around with people who at his time people thought were the kind of worst sinners. He hung around with thieves and and prostitutes and drunks and people that were looked down on in in his particular culture. And these people were experiencing his love and and turning to him in in the midst of their their life bottoming bottoming out for them. Now, it takes some humility to do that, though. I think we we want to clean our lives up because we don't like admitting that we've got a problem. It can be hard to admit that we have stuffed things up. And yet that's what we need to understand in order to become a Christian. So the, the fact that your life is not all clean or worked out should not be a barrier in going to God and, and being accepted. In fact, it should be the very reason you do it. And finally, you might just be held back because you're waiting for certainty. You're pretty sure this is all true, but you just want some kind of big thing just to confirm it all for you. And to that, I would say that there are very few things in this life that you get 100% degree of certainty with. But the fact that that's the case doesn't take away the decision. Decisions have to be made. And decisions have to be made based on, on what you can gather around you. Eventually, you've got to make a decision. To, and to not choose Jesus is to choose to not have Jesus. I think complete certainty 
in making a decision like this is unrealistic. But I would say my experience, that have, my experience has been that in deciding to, to embrace God, to, to ask for this forgiveness and, and receive it, and, and to start pursuing a life relationship with God, when I, when I first did this, I would have, it's hard to put a number on it, I would have said I was 85% sure that it was true. And the years in which I've walked with God in this relationship has time and time again strengthened that confirmation. Just strengthened that, 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 that understanding in my head that this is, relationship is real. Relationships aren't things you, you kind of stand on the outside and analyze and analyze and think and pick apart um, until they're absolutely perfect and then start them. Relationships are things you embrace and, and, and experience. So I would say don't die waiting for some big thing, if, you, if you've seen enough to know that God is real and that he loves you and that Jesus died for you. I say if you're, if you're thinking about doing this, of, of starting a relationship with God and being welcomed home by this Father who loves you, I would just say do it. C.S. Lewis says this. It'll come up on the screen. He says, All your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever. That's my plea. Accept this forgiveness. Accept this love. What we're going to do now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that you can pray along with if you're someone who's a Christian and you've been a Christian for some time. But it's also going to be a prayer that if you've never actually spoken to God before um, or acknowledged this before him or accepted this forgiveness that he offers you can, you can actually say to, say to God in your own heads. After that, we're going to be watching a, a, a video of a testimony, the story of, a, of a, um, a girl from 4 p.m. here at Chelsea who often leads music for us about her journey and understanding God's love for her. And then after that, Jez will be letting us know what we can do. But if you want to pray this prayer with me now, I really encourage you to do that. And if that is something that you do, I'd love you to let us know by writing on the white card that will be collected later. You can also write on there if you, if you just want to talk about any of this stuff with someone, um, I'd encourage you to do that as well. well. I'm going to finish now by praying, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that we have wronged you. We know that we've used you, that we've looked for happiness in, in many things, but, but last of all you. We've lived for ourselves, we've, we've gone our own way, and that this has offended you deeply. It's broken your heart. And so we want to thank you that you're a good, loving father. Help us understand your love for us like a father. Help anyone right now in this room who is struggling to see you as a dad who loves them to understand that deeply. Thank you for what Jesus did for us. Thank you that he died in our place, that we could be forgiven. And we thank you that we get to have a relationship with you. Lord, help us live out this relationship. Help those of us who are still unsure to, to do what it takes to find out if this is really true. Lord, my prayer is that no one in this room would miss out on this amazing joy that comes from being back in a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a video on the screen, and then just let us know what's happening after that.